Hey everybody, it's me, Ben, your creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers panel, and today's podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. We told you about it before. It's great. Just use it for a free trial and 10% off. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code WRITERS8. That's WRITERS and the number 8. Uh, it starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. I do it. You should do it. It's cool. It's super easy. It has over 20 highly customizable templates for you to choose from. Uh, every de- design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on any device every time, which is good because who uh, looks at stuff on a computer anymore? No one? That's who. My mom, maybe? Probably. Uh, It's incredibly easy to use, which I already told you, but it's here in the copy. But it's actually true. It's easy to use. Uh, If you want some help, Squarespace does have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Uh, And we do thank Squarespace for their support uh, and support for this podcast. Uh, we also thank you for listening to it. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. That is always helpful. And uh, I like to read them when I'm feeling sad. Thanks, and thanks, Squarespace. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Hi, my name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, and also, yes, correct. Thank you. Um, and I'm thrilled to be here uh, for the pitch pilot pickup. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, starting here with Liz, we're going to go down and introduce yourselves very quickly and tell these people why they should know you and why you're on this panel. Because <laughs> what did you pitch and what did you pilot and what got picked up? And then we'll jump right in. We'll talk for a little bit, but mostly I want to get to your questions. Uh, so get them ready. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Liz. All right. I'm Liz Tegelar, and um, the, the show I pitched and got picked up was Life Unexpected. Uh, Are you fans? You probably don't know me from that. You probably know me from (laughs) They know. (laughs) Maybe from Nashville or Revenge or, um, I don't know, American Dreams. And uh, and, um, currently I'm writing on Bates Motel. Uh, I'm Kyle Killen. I did uh, Lone Star, Awake, and uh, most recently Mind Games. I'm Brian Seabury. I'm at CBS Drama. We tried to buy Kyle's show last year. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I buy pitches for CBS, and I was a seller before that. Uh, I'm Charlie Ebersol. I make unscripted television shows, so I'm not entirely sure what the hell I'm doing for this panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, what, what are uh, some of your unscripted shows? We have The Great Escape on TNT, The Moment on US, um, The Big Fix on CNBC. We have about nine shows in, in form. So the beauty of reality. The beauty of reality is you pitch like seven hundred times as much as they do. So it's oh good. And we'll talk about how better. we'll talk about how that's different. Uh, Court. 
I'm Corey Marsh. I'm the director of development over at Disney Channel. So I buy mostly comedy pitches, but before that, I uh, worked on the selling side and definitely did both drama and comedy. So if you guys have questions, please ask at, the, during the, at any point during this panel. No, wait for the Q&A. Don't ask <laughs> at any point during the panel. That will be horrible. And I'm Julie Pleck, and I guess I'm a surprise visitor, because yes. um, I, I wasn't sure I was going to be here. Um, but I, uh, I do the Vampire Diaries and, um, and did Kyle XY, and uh, coming up have uh, a spinoff of the Vampire Diaries and the Tomorrow People. Perfect. <laughs> Um, I want to I want to talk to the writers first, and then we'll talk to the executives. Um, in many ways, pitching is anathema to what we do. Uh, we sit in a room, oftentimes alone, especially when it's on a pilot, and write it by ourselves. Uh, pitching, you have to go out and put on a bit of a show. Um, Liz, let's start with you and talk a little bit about pitching a show, uh, how you prepared a pitch, uh, and how that pitching experience was for you. Um. Well, I think everybody has like a little, probably a little bit of a different pitch process. Um, for me, I like to, you know, I think, I think in coming up with a pitch, like you kind of have the basic things that you're going to cover in maybe like a 15-minute presentation, and people do it differently. The way I do it is I, um, you know, I kind of come up with a log line that's very clear. I kind of try to come up with like it's this meets this, like you know. Whatever. Well, Let's like, like not expected would, be, would have probably been like knocked up. You know, it's like knocked up 15 years later, or it's like I don't know. Whatever the poster said, <laughs> Gilmore Girls meets Juno. <laughs> I do say so myself. No, I mean it's like I don't know. <laughs> you know, something like that. Sometimes it's nice to just give them an idea. Try to talk about maybe the tone because I think. Um, you know, is it Gilmore Girls? Is it Juno? Is it knock? Is it going to be as funny as Knocked Up? Does it have more of an indie vibe? But you know, what's what's the tone? And then, kind of delving into the characters and and who they are. And um, for me, it's always about um, what's inside of them that will make you be able to keep coming back to them week after week after week to mine story. And and it's always like. I call it like the heart box, or like what's I mean, like what what at their heart, like what do they need fixing, and what can they never overcome, and what's always going to be in their way, no matter how many times they try to kind of push it aside. And I think it's kind of showing, um, you know, who these characters are, and then how they're going to kind of ping off each other, and why why you want to invest in the story, and why it's complicated, and why it kind of becomes this interesting web that you're going to turn it, you know, tune into. Um, so when you put that all together. Um, you know, usually it's about like a maybe 15, 20 minute pitch. And I like to write it all down really clearly. I like to write like bullet points to myself. It's like usually like eight pages long. And then I, <laughs> and then I, Julie's official now. And then I like to just kind of go over it until I have it memorized. And then I always pitch, this is weird, but I always pitch with a pitch pillow. I bring a pillow in so that I can what? sit with a pillow on my lap so that the paper isn't too far from my face so I can like maintain eye contact. And then I just try to do the whole thing Wait, from, yeah. is this your pillow that you bring in? Or well, do you no, because get that a pillow seems when you're weird. there? <laughs> <laughs> so it already seems weird. Weirder. I have to get in and go, they don't have a pillow. <laughs> and then they're like, what? And then I'm like, it's just a pitch pillow. So I can make it. And, then, and then they like scurry around and then they get me a pillow and then I'm uncomfortable because I've made, I've, it's been awkward. And <laughs> But you know what? It was just going to be like 15 minutes of small talk anywhere. Hi, how are you? Like, let's just cut it out. Can anyone get me a pillow? And, um, 
and then um, pitch it. And the way I try to pitch is just really, I, I try to force myself to kind of look back at the paper so I stay on track and don't stumble through it. But I really try to think it. Like, that's the best way I can say it. Like, mm. I try to really, like, think the story and not try to remember every word, but just think it how I would tell you if I was, like, going to tell you about the show in my head. So that's yeah. kind of how I do that's it. Great. That's great. Uh, Kyle, what's what's your process? And specifically, let's talk about your most recent pickup, uh, Mind Games. Do, is this a show that you pitch to the network? Uh, yeah. And I'm kind of the, uh, there's no like fly by the seat of the pants thing with me. Like I'm, I get terrified. So <laughs> it's all hyper scripted, hyper memorized. Really? Like it's the exact you, same. You actually script out dialogue for your Write it. Like I try to write it like a feature article about my show. <laughs> and then I memorize the whole thing, like right down to where I'm going to like hold for, this will make him smile. <laughs> Because it's just, and that gets to be really, so, and the, I like to get to a place where um, I don't bring any paper with me. I didn't know pillows were optional, so maybe <laughs> I might revise that in the future. Kyle's had more success than I um, have. <laughs> I might Those pillows are holding you back. <laughs> but you get, like, anything that you've memorized, sometimes you run into a spot where, like, you hang and like they don't, I don't, they don't care if you have paper. It's just like it's a mental thing for me that I know if I have the paper, I will refer to it. Over, like I won't be on track. So I've had some moments where like, just, just hold on. And like, do you do you want to check your notes? Nope, I got this. It's fine. It's good. And then I had to back up and do the last sentence, and like ramp myself through that. So those pitches sell really well. You want to do it that way. What, how uh, thorough was your pitch for, say, Mind Games? Well, what was uh, involved in it? I guess I shouldn't say it was a lot less thorough than it? previous ones. I, I, took a, I took a pitch to the studio earlier last season that uh, I ended up not taking out, but it was like it was like a 45 minute epic tale. Like, let me sit down and tell you the history of, like, it just went on and on. And it was all memorized. Like, I was really proud of myself that I could, but it was like a one man show. And they just were like, and when we got to the next one, they were like, you know, you really, just kind of what it's about. Just, just general terms. We don't really need to know what happens in episode eight. It's just, we'll cancel it before then anyways. Uh, amazing. Uh, and do you, do you take, because you're so, you know, organized and so on the paper, or, or off of the paper, I should say, uh, do you take questions afterwards? Are oh, you that's another, like, those? where they're like, you know, well, it's about the CIA. And they're like, can there be werewolves? And you're like, what? I was, <laughs> let me back up and do that sentence again. You're interrupting, you don't understand how this works. Right. Questions come at the end. <laughs> when you see me, like, go like that. Like, I finished, yeah. Uh, but the question, you feel okay about the questions because you, you know the material. and like It's okay yeah, yeah, that they're yeah, not yeah. scripted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I hand them. These are the only <laughs> things you can ask me. This is all I'm prepared for. If you don't like these, we're just not going to work together. Sorry. Uh, let's jump over to Julie uh, and talk about, again, same, same question. You're pitching uh, process. I'm curious a little bit about the originals, if you had to go and pitch this as a series before, you know, backdooring it into uh, Vampire Diaries. Well, I was, um, I was actually an executive for a long time before I was a writer, and so I was always on the other side of the writer's pitch. Um, I wasn't a buyer like, you know, the, like the fancies to my right, but, um, but I worked, I worked at, uh, at a company, and I would take other writers out on their pitches, and so I've heard, <clears throat> you know, all the bad ones, all the good ones, seen 
and kind of you know where people crash and burn and, and where they fumble and and where uh, they and where on. they thrive. <laughs> Let me ask you about these ones where yeah. people crash and burn. Uh, what happens in these pictures? nerves? It's always nerves. And honestly, you know, it's funny because it nerves come from obviously you're putting on a show, and I think that the the tragic irony of the pitch process for a writer is, you know, writers are by definition not necessarily extroverts. They're not necessarily, um, you know, social butterflies. I mean, like Liz and I are sort of like the sorority girls of writers. We're like, hey, I'm gonna story. Let's go tell it. You know, and like that's that's how we roll. But um, you know. Many writers are sort of like, um, well, I just uh, I've just been sitting in my room for like a year, like, and, you know. So it's so sad to have to put writers through this um, because you're basically saying, hey, I know you've never joined the drama club, but like, could you do like a nine minute monologue now and it could really make it funny and like make it flow. Um, Anyway, so I, uh, what, was, what was the question? Um, <laughs> let's, let's jump to your pitching Yes, experience. so my, what I had to find for myself is that um, I realized, you know, when I made the transition from, from a producer into a writing producer who had to then go and sell my own stuff, uh, I didn't know quite what my process was going to be, and I knew that I was terrified at giving speeches. Um, if I had to give a talk, a conference, a speech, uh, you know, anything scripted, I would get so nervous and I would almost throw up, and I'd be very like you could see my hand shaking. But if I had to give a toast at a wedding that I hadn't planned, you know, you have a cup of glass of wine, you're like, hey, this is my friends. I could talk, or like in a Q and A kind of situation, I could talk forever and be completely comfortable. So I kind of realized if I memorize it. I'm fucked. Excuse my language. Just totally screwed. Because if I totally memorize it, then I will be performing. So I had to find the fine line between memorization and just and and extemporaneous kind of comfortability with the content. And uh, and it's it's terrifying because you live in fear that your preparation is either too much. You've what I'll do is I'll I'll write the entire pitch out as though it's coming out of my head. I'll write it once, and then I will take that six, seven pages worth of paper, and I'll read it, like, 15 times. And I won't practice it. I won't practice it in the mirror. I'll just read it 15 times and maybe mouth it to myself. So I'm always afraid either I over-prepared, and therefore now I'm performing, which means I'm going to be nervous, and it's going to be horrible, or I under-prepared, which means I'm going to get in there, I'm going to have, like, a cold crowd, and I'm going to freeze, and it's going to be a disaster. Um, so it's, a, it's a, this gamble that I take every time, which is terrifying, which gives me, like, colossal anxiety... Um, but if you, I guess the, the sort of takeaway from that is that if you know what you're talking about, it doesn't matter the details, the syntax in which you deliver it. It doesn't matter the rhythm and the flow and the pause for some people. It just means you're having a conversation about something that you're really passionate about and something that you really love and that you know really well. So all you really have to do is kind of give yourself a structure if you're the kind of person who, where memorization kills you. I have another writer that I worked with, like Kyle, who would literally, he would get the same coffee drink every day. He would bring it into the pitch. He would start with a sip. He would deliver his pitch. And then I realized after five pitches that he was taking a sip at exactly the same time. <laughs> Finally, I was like, dude, like the, you, the caffeine, you must be out of control. He's like, no, this is my lucky coffee. Like, I got it. <laughs> and he, he would never be able to pitch without that coffee and that, you know that sip. Well, there is something to normalizing it, right? Yes. Is I have this routine, so it's going to come out a little bit easier. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, Charlie, 
Let's talk about pitching uh, non-scripted television. We call it less scripted. He <laughs> 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 um, I've been waiting to say that since like <laughs> 9.30 this morning. I'm like, I looked at the panel and I was like, what the fuck? Anyway. <laughs> um, well, first of all, these guys prep for like four months to pitch one show. We pitch, on average, my, uh, my company pitches 14 to 24 shows a month. So the idea of being nervous about a pitch kind of goes out the window after, like, the 31st pitch because you're like... But we also go in, it's like a road show. I mean, I come in with tape. I mean, we cut, like, a trailer for what the show is. We probably have a piece of talent there. Incidentally, Herman Cain is by far the best piece of talent to bring into a room. The dude is hilarious. Um, <laughs> Also doesn't realize he lost the election, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, our pitch process is really, our pitch process is really, um, it starts with like, it starts with an idea. So we'll say like, I'll, I'll, give, I'll use the moment as an example. The moment was USA's first reality show. And it came out of uh, my business partner and I um, were big movie fans. He really liked uh, the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, with Jimmy Stewart in the end where Jimmy's faced with that decision like you know is the grass greener on the other side and I really like the the George Clooney movie Up in the Air and I don't know if you remember, there's a scene in the movie where J.K. Simons has just been fired and George Clooney says to him well he goes what, what should I do and, and George uh, Clooney says well you could cook and J.K. Simons is like what the hell are you talking about he's like well it says on your resume that you were a French chef before you came here how much should they pay you to give up on your, on your dream and that line, like, how much do they pay you to give up on your dream, was the entire show. Like, that was like, and so off of that, what we did was we went out, we built a format for the show to exactly what's going to happen each hour, and then we cut a piece of tape stealing Clooney and all these other people and kind of put it together that is really just like an emotional tape. Like, you want your executive to do stuff like, ah, and then laugh at the right points, and if they don't, then afterwards they're like, well, what if? And you're like, yes, we'll do that too. Um, <laughs> This, this kind of supplementary material has kind of become a, a bigger thing, even for scripted stuff. Uh, and just quickly, have you guys who have pitched scripted stuff, do you guys use this? or have I you? always bring Herman Cain. Sure. It's <laughs> very successful. Supplementary You material. laugh. <laughs> have you used this? Uh, no, I never have, but I have a director friends who will always come in with a, like a beautiful sort of tone reel that they've pulled together, almost like a, a, a fan video, like teaser uh, trailer like uh, with great score and images from other movies and stuff that sort of evokes what they're trying to do because tone really being able to establish it is so important and if you have the visual acumen to then be able to say here's what the world looks like in my mind um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the worst thing in the world. I, I, we, we just launched our scripted division mm -hmm. and we sold our first show and so I've been in now I've been in a bunch of scripted pitches and I used to run a film studio where we'd you know, be taking on pitches. First of all, I have a lot of respect for you guys because it is the most painful process in the world. Because regardless, and this is for you too, it's like, <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a CIA show with werewolves, right? And you're like, uh, no. And they're like, it would be better if there were werewolves. And you're like, well, I guess there could be werewolves in the fifth act. But, um, but I was going to say, we like, it's funny because I sit down with writers. They come in, pitch us an idea. We're going to take it out together, um, and they'll be like, okay, here's the idea. And my instinct will be like, all right, so we'll cut tape, we'll have boards. What actors are you thinking? We'll get them cut out onto pieces of paper, you know. And the, the, the writers, for the most part, are like, wow, that sounds great. I've never, ever been asked to do any of that before. Why would we ever do that? 
Um, but it makes a lot of sense. But the we sold the show, so yeah. I was like, told you so. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is why we're taking over your business. Uh, let's... <laughs> 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 Thank you. I'll be here. All. Uh, let's move on. Brian, uh, tell us about being on the other side of this. Uh, what do you look for in a pitch? Yeah. What do you? How do you? You know, what, what makes you respond to a pitch? You know, yeah, we have a lot of people walking through the door. It's about anywhere from three to four hundred pitches a, a year, and that's in a very short amount of time. So we're talking about we open on July fourth and we close about mid October, um, and we're hearing five to six pitches a day. Um, so, and we buy about 55, um, and what we're looking for, I mean, you're looking for a hit show and where does that come from is any number of places, but certainly a writer, I mean, certainly a great writer is a, um, but, but a writer with a show, you can just tell in that room that it's kind of oozing out of their port. Like they are dying to write not only that pilot, but but those episodes and that they are passionate about it. And then, of course, you know, I have a very specific job and then I'm buying for CBS. So I have those very specific concerns as a network. What is our brand? I might even be thinking time slot, uh, potentially, um, as opposed... Let me me just interject for one sec. Uh, These questions about what is a CBS show, what is our brand, what is our mandate... Are these conversations you have between like June and July? These are as you're opening up to pitches. Yeah, and we haven't changed it much. We, we tend to not put out into the community. We're looking for a medical show, or we really want uh, werewolves. Seem to be what we're all talking about right now. Um, by the way, I'm buying your CIA werewolf show. Um, we tend to we have a whole spiel about that, that the good wife kind of taught us something different about ourselves as a network and about our audience and. And I won't get into that entire spiel, but it is really about character and having character be the reason to tune into the show. And whether you can see it or not in the show's person of interest was an incredibly personal pitch from, from Jonah Nolan. Um, even something like Hostages, which is going to launch this fall, it was a writer talking about his family and that we're all sort of hostages of our own situations, and he made it in- incredibly personal. Uh, rather than coming in and selling us the sizzle and we're in a post-Homeland universe and let's do a big serialized show and you guys need this, it was incredibly personal and very character-driven. And same question, uh, Corey, you know, what are you looking for in a pitch? What makes you respond to a pitch? And uh, are you getting different kinds of pitches? I mean, I I would imagine they must be more visual. Definitely more visual, but uh, starting with Kyle, you know, look, I really want to buy your show, but it's got to be zombies, not not werewolves for us. I mean, Disney only buys zombies. But look, it's um, it, it's really an interesting thing. I think pitching, having having heard many, many, many pitches, a lot of people. I think the biggest mistake that I see going in is people come in and they pitch adjectives. They pitch their characters and they go, "She's a smart and." funny type. She's like a Tracy flick. And and as an executive, you hear those same things over and over again, as opposed to, I always give the example of like Penny from um, the show Happy Endings, if you guys have seen that. She's the kind of girl who walks into a room, sees people playing poker, a group of guys and girls, takes off her shirt and assumes it's a strip poker game, and then is embarrassed when she finds out that it's just a regular poker game. That's who she is. And that says a lot about who that character is to me, and I can visualize it as a comedy buyer. But saying somebody's funny or weird or um, quirky, that doesn't mean anything. So 
it, for me, in the first 90 seconds of a pitch, you usually know if you want to buy it. And, it's, and, and the great pitchers that are out there know how to really grab you immediately. I don't know if any of you were on um, the panel yesterday with Dan Harmon, but I thought he, he really captured what a pitch should be like. He said, you know when you're really excited about Game of Thrones and, <laughs> and nobody has seen it? Like, there's like a big group of people who have n- never seen Game of Thrones, and you want to explain to them your passion for it. How would you explain Game of Thrones to someone who's never seen it before in 90 seconds? And the thing is, you will explain only the pieces that they actually need when you do that because you're so passionate about the show. And as a network executive, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear why you're passionate about the show and why I should buy it based off of that. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter if it's 20 minutes or 6 minutes. If, if, I, if I get that it's funny and that you know your characters, that's all that matters. Um, yeah. There's a... Has anyone seen? It's an old movie, but the Presidio, the Sean. Con- thank, thank God. Uh, there's a scene of Meg Ryan where she's, she's the 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 romantic, kind of romantic, uh, lead in it. But the roles are reversed. She's more in a traditional stereotype. She's more the male, and the the guy is more the female in kind of movie terms. Anyway, she gives a speech. She says, you know, you decide in the first thirty seconds whether or not you're gonna kiss a guy or hook up with him, or whatever. And everything after that's a negotiation. I approach pitches like a first date. Like, my whole thing is when I'm going in, like, you, even if I know the executive really well, I'm going in, and my whole goal is for in the first 30 seconds for them to want to make out with me, and the next 90 seconds, them to be planning what hotel room we're going to, and then... <laughs> and I'm so f- serious right now. It's not even funny. I, because the thing is, like, you know what I'm talking about. You know what that first... You know, when you first meet the guy or girl at the bar, and you walk up, and you have that interaction, and... And you know instantaneously you're interested, and all you're trying to do is read their face to figure out if they're interested too. And if they are, then you're like, let's go sit down and get the food. If they're not, you're like, oh, the table's not available. We should, you know, <laughs> bail and get coffee. Um, <laughs> that, that, that to me is what the whole pitch is about. And so, like, talking about the first 90 seconds, as the seller, at least in our, on our side, you know in the first 90 seconds whether or not you have even a little bit of interest, except at ABC where it's like... <laughs> The whole time. Yeah, notoriously. I mean, seriously, so. it's ridiculous. Like yeah. They could be in your CIA werewolf show. <laughs> That's going to sell before the end of the week. <laughs> before the end of the night. I have a tape being cut right now. <laughs> um, selling the pitch is only the first hurdle, you guys. Um, then you have to write the pilot. Let's talk about that. Uh, again, let's, you know, let's... <laughs> Let's get specific, uh, if we can. Uh, and Kyle, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, but I'd how you came to that decision. <laughs> <laughs> After pitching, again, say Mind Games, because it's, it's fresh in our minds, for those of us who watched it on the plane on the way here. Um, <laughs> um, what was the, you know, you do enter this negotiation, and, you know, you've sold the pitch, but then it's a kind of prolonged negotiation for what is this pilot actually going to look like? How do I move this forward? How do I do enough of what the... Network wants to get it on the air, but still make it the show that I want it to be. Talk, talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, it's sort of like a triathlon. Like, the three events have nothing to do with each other. I mean, there's a, there's yeah. a through line in that they're all about the same show. But, like, we just talked about the first one in some form of a performance. And then it's like the deck gets cleared. It's, now there's all these other people that you're in competition with. They bought all these pitches. But they have, I mean, you know, there's penalties and so on and so forth. But... The real truth is they're going to make the best scripts that come in, mostly. So <laughs> you, now you have to go right, which is the thing that you 
do, and I find that's the that's the place I'm the most comfortable, right? Because that's why you got into it. That's why you put yourself through the nine minutes of terror, you know, talking about what the show is going to be. And so in that phase, I'm a lot... It's a lot easier to tune everybody else out, right? Because I feel like if you, if you had coached me the first time and I needed coffee and pillows and Herman Cain, then I would have done all those things. <laughs> but, like, once you clear that hurdle, I'm, I'm more comfortable with the... Now I'm going to go home. The work of the work. Yeah, I'll see you in, like, whatever, a couple months. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in those couple months, though, what are you showing to the network? How much are you giving them? You know, do you go from full out, like, loose outline to full outline? What, how much are they involved with the process? Well, they don't give you a choice, really. I mean, well, they might. I mean, there might be really people who are super successful and just turn stuff in. I follow the rules that they give you, which is that you know you you start with like a, a couple page document about what you're going to do, and then you move on to an outline about what you're going to do, and then you write a script. Um, so you're getting feedback mm-hmm. the whole the whole time. I find there's a level of engagement all the way through, but where people really pay attention is when it's a script. They're like, oh shit, what what? We bought this? What is this? this? And then you get, like, so I try to get there as quickly as possible, like, both because it helps me to know what it's going to be. I mean, I don't write outlines for, I mean, I guess I do, but I, we make scripts. So that's the part where I feel like the conversation really starts. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Liz, same question, or similar at least. You know, tell us a little bit about your experience in developing that pilot with a network. Well, I, my experience is have been, I guess, a little bit different every time, but, um, you know, I I agree with Kyle. Like, the most exciting thing is when your outline finally gets, I mean, for me, it was like, with Life Unexpected, I probably did, I'm not even kidding, 20 outlines. I mean, it was like crazy. Um, I did a lot of outlines. Why? What was the back and forth? I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I actually did so many drafts of this too. That was still when it was still with um, Disney at the time? It was, yes, it was. I developed it starting at ABC, and then it ended up eventually going to CW, and then went to CBS, and Brian Brian and I worked on it together. Um, But um, it was just a long development process. I mean, I think it, it was... I don't really know why. I mean, maybe I just kept doing a bad job with the outline. That's probably why. Um, I'm like, I can't figure it out why they kept making me just like redoing it, redoing it. But, um, but yeah, and then I wrote the script, and then uh, the script was terrible. Um, and nothing, you know, they were like, I handed it in, and they were like, um, hey, so we're spinning, we're doing a remake of 90210. Are you interested? And I was like, I literally just emailed the script this morning. I was like, before I write this off completely, like I kind of want to play this out for more than like twelve hours. Um, and then they were like, okay, so never mind. And then I was like, oh my god. And then, um, and then months went by, and um, finally I got a call to come in. And I remember I went in to meet with the CW again, and they were like, we just have some notes. And it was like so. I remember I was wearing this like I was wearing this tank top. It's only relevant because. I sweated through it <laughs> to the point of like right when I thought I actually couldn't get sweatier, I got even sweatier. And I was like, I don't know how. And you know that show from like the '80s where she could like put her fingers together and like everything would freeze, and you could be like, I'm really sweating. I was like, I just want to freeze time. And I remember at the end of it, Don Osgrove had like gone through all these notes on the script, but then at the end she said, um, "Was that was equivalent of like?" 
but it was formatted well. Like it was something like, <laughs> but like it looked great. And I was just like, oh my God. And I went downstairs and I went to the bar at the bottom of whatever, the CW. And I was like, mm-hmm. and, um, and I was just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You know, and I remember Tom Sherman came down and he was like, don't freak out. He was like, do this, do this, and do this. And I was like, and um, so I did, and he's like, we'll call you in July. And I'm like, perfect. September 30th, <laughs> I sold another pilot, a cop show, which I was, um, you know, whatever, a natural fit. And, um, and right after I sold that and it was in first position, they were like, good news, Life Unexpected is picked up to be shot. And I was like, oh my god, that's amazing. And they were like, in second position. And I was like, oh my god. And I was like, only I could have gotten myself embroiled in a, t- in a cop show that, uh, whatever. So anyway, blah, blah, blah. It was, the, the writing process no, was... you had to write the cop show. Oh, that was the worst part. Oh, yeah, the... that's what I had to do. I was like, oh, but I mean, I'll, I'll surely find a way to get out of this cop show. And, I mean, let's be honest, I'll mangle it so badly, someone will like, lift me out of it anyway. And, um, and at one point, they did, and I was like, oh, thank God. And then they were like, we lifted you out. And they're like, but here, we're putting you back. And they did oh, it the week right. I was shooting Life Unexpected. <laughs> So I had seven days to shoot the pilot, and I sat on set in the dark the entire shoot writing a cop show. Oh. It was every every time I had a minute, I was just like in a corner, like bundled up, and I was like faded, and I was like something with guns. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. This is a show you know how to write is shooting. The show I know how to write is shooting without me. It's just fine. It's just shooting itself. Yeah. That's hilarious. So anyway, so I guess I could say the writing was mixed for me. (laughs) I'm I'm closing my scripted division. (laughs) Sounds awful. (laughs) Um, Brian and Corey, talk to me a little bit, if you would, about, again, the same question about finding, striking that balance between what the network needs and what, you know, you want to give, giving your writer the creative freedom. Yeah, again, you know, specific instructions for me from you know on on high as far as this does have to be a cbs show but again the ones that have hit for us have not come from us trying to turn it into something that it wasn't so hopefully our notes are going toward helping the show find its kind of natural best place Mm now uh, are there some notes that i have that i cringe a a little bit while giving in, in an effort because you have sold you have sold your show to a place that is doing sort of big tent programming, mm-hmm. right? Just by definition, it's different than selling your show to, to A&E. Right. But again, I think that person of interest, uh, elementary, good wife, these are shows that, that, that I think these people are writing the shows that they wanted to write. And I think that by design, again, in their kind of natural resting place in their, in, in, their, in their natural, when they settled into the show that they were, they ended up being CBS shows. Mm-hmm. And I think that they ended up finding the home that they wanted, as opposed to somebody coming in with, with you know, Mad Men and me trying to turn that into, but I need 14 million people to watch this and it needs to come on after NCIS. That, that doesn't work. So it's at its, the notes process, the development process is at its best when hopefully at the end of it, that show was, was meant Mm-hmm. to kind of live in that world of, of a broadcaster. And what are the kinds of notes that don't make you cringe? I mean, what are the ones that you feel like you kind of find yourself addressing uh, fairly frequently? I think, 
I think that it would be hopefully like when your friends who you trust are reading it, when you give it to your writer friends and they're reading it, hopefully it's, you're so, as a writer, you're probably so close to it. And when you can get those fresh eyes and get some really helpful notes about, I mean, maybe it's confusion, maybe it's, I mean, it's rarely kind of a great idea that I'm pitching back. I think it's just more something that just wasn't quite working and, and, and hopefully just helping you s steer that path. I mean, the outline portion, yes, some writers do like to outline if it was just for themselves. Um, some don't, and you're right, we do demand it. It, it, is, it didn't used to be, a, 10 years ago, there, wa it was, there wasn't always a demand for the outline, but to kind of steer that ship where if it was, if the first thing that we saw after the pilot story document was the script, and structurally it just was not in a place where it was in a place where we thought we could help it, we just found, we as collectively networks and studios just found it easier to work on the structure of something in an outline form than once you have the characters kind of up walking back. Now that's not, that's people who aren't writers kind of imposing that, but it, it is, you're right, it is very much a part of the process mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. Anything to add, Corey? You know, I, I like to give the writer as much creative freedom as possible, and I do that knowing that Michael Jacobs is staring at me in the back of the room, <laughs> staring daggers at me, going, no, you don't. But, um, but, but the, the truth of the matter is if you've, if you've, brought, if you've brought, bought a project from somebody and they're passionate about it, they usually have a pretty good idea of what they want to do with the show. But at the end of the day, I have to pitch up to my bosses, Brian has to pitch up to his bosses, and we're all answering to somebody. So it's all about finding a way to compromise between what the writer wants and what you need for you know, the corporate oversight of the network. But at the end of the day, if you don't let the writer have what they want, they're probably not going to write you the best show, and you're not going to have something to put on the air. So you'll argue, you'll fight. I love those fights because it makes you a better executive. But at the end of the day, I really respect the people I'm in business with, and, and I could never do what they do, what they do. I could never do the pitch. I could, never, I could never write the script that they write. I can only hope to be as additive as possible. And um, sometimes you're not additive. It, as a network executive, sometimes you, you hurt the script, and, and you know that. And that's, I mean, I might be the first network executive to admit that uh, on a stage, but sometimes you, you do something, and then you read the next draft, you're like, oh, that was because of my note. Now i got to give another note and admit that I was wrong. <laughs> but, but for the most part, writers know what they want to do, and they have it in their head, and, and you can steer them toward the brand, but... If you really believed in them and did your research before you bought the project in the first place, you usually get what you want. Um, we're going to turn it over to questions from you guys in just a minute, but we're going to do a speed round first. Um, starting with Julie. Uh, what is the worst, dumbest, silliest note you've gotten or given? Oh, Christ. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure I've given plenty. Um, you know... I I thought it was the worst note I'd ever gotten, uh, and and somebody said in the very first script I ever wrote, they read it and they said, "Look, you just need to dig deeper." And I was like, "Dig deeper? What kind of bullshit network executive note is that? Like, what the hell? Like, dig deeper, be funnier, you know? Like, <clears throat> but but that being said, when I really sort of like tried to break it down and understand it, it was that. I was writing everything at the surface. I was writing text and not subtext. I was telling the story without feeling the story. All those things um, that you just, until you get used to writing, <laughs> you don't realize what's missing. So it was a dumb note that turned out to be a note now I give all the time, um, only I explain it better. <laughs> Corey. 
Um, I gave the most cliche note, which is, oh, can you raise the stakes? Which doesn't mean anything to any writer, I realize, but that's when you realize you're totally stuck as a network executive. You have no idea what to do. So when you hear that note, it's like, yeah, that act one, I really wish you could raise the stakes. And as you're saying, you're like, oh, God, I wish I didn't say that. What a horrible note. Like, what are they going to do with that? Nothing. You, you know you have the option to not say it, right? I know, but... It, <laughs> no, as a network executive, we must give notes. That's how we get paid. Never working at Disney. <laughs> Charlie. Uh, two notes. One was, why aren't there music and graphics on the dailies? Oh, my God. That's awful. <laughs> Where did that come from? Uh, I'm not, not going to say CW. But, like, how... But... <laughs> <laughs> No, no offense, Julie. Second note, which was a combination of three notes, can we shoot it on the set of Titanic? <laughs> which, you know, is in Mexico and doesn't exist. <laughs> can we shoot it on the set of The Towering Inferno, which burned down in 1937? <laughs> and, honestly, swear to God, quoting, honestly, how much would a thousand snakes cost? <laughs> but do you know how much a thousand snakes cost? Yeah, actually. Oh, no, because, by the way, I still had to budget all of those things. So I had to come back a week later and be like, the set of Titanic, you know, is gone because they shot Pearl Harbor there, and it's going to cost us, like, $8 million to rebuild the set. Towering Inferno burned down, but, you know, we could, like, fake it at Universal. And a thousand snakes cost, again, not joking, $32,500, excluding travel and handlers. <laughs> Because do you know how many handlers you have to have from the animal protection, blah, blah, blah? You have no idea. One handler for every seven snakes. Yeah, do that, That's math. fewer than I would have been on a, on a reality set that has 63 crew members. This whole thing's being recorded, right? Yep. Uh-oh. We'll, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> Kyle. Uh... I can't top snakes. Um, I, you get a lot of notes at the end that are about things that are insanely obvious than needing to be stated uh, mm-hmm. in voiceover. So, like, in in Lone Star, <laughs> yeah. they have, like, this long conversation about the con that they're doing and who the victim is and how much money they've gotten from them and so on and so forth. And then they were like, well, are people going to know that they're con men? <laughs> So and we recorded it sort of out of spite, like, surely in the end, like, this won't be in there. But it's, they finished a long conversation about conning someone, and then the dad says to him, he's like, you know you're a con man, son. It's like, if, if, if you didn't get it from context, son, about this conversation we were having, and you, you get asked to do that more often than you would think. But I did like Lone Star. Thank you. It was mostly, it was that line that cemented it for you. It made you understand it. That's how he figured uh, out he was a con man. Right. Well, that is, uh, my, I mean, my favorite is always, you know how we're brothers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I greet my brother every Christmas. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a girl talking to a guy. That was my favorite. <laughs> Thank you for that exposition. I didn't know. Uh, Liz. Um, oh, I don't know. I, well, I have a couple that will make Brian laugh because he was there, but yeah, they weren't. It wasn't giving. Them. It wasn't. They, they <laughs> just them. didn't oh. stop it though. They weren't bad. <laughs> they weren't bad notes. They were just badly timed notes because we had gotten to the end of the seven days of shooting while I was writing the cop pilot on the side, and um, <laughs> at the very end, um, 
Actually, I think Brian faked a phone call during this, but... Uh, That's true. <laughs> I, got, I got to take that. Yeah, I, I was like... She's like, where are you going? I was like... <laughs> someone... Awesome. It was a fair question because it had been a concern, but we were literally had about three more hours to shoot of the pilot, and she said, is Kate likable, the main character? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and she said, she just... I don't know. Does she seem unlikable? And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, Brian? And he was like, what? And I was like, <laughs> I was like there is no one on that phone. Which was also uh, followed up by um, a character, Britt Robertson, was laying in a sleeping bag outside her dad's bar. And we'd been shooting for about three hours. <laughs> the question was, does Lux look homeless? <laughs> I'm like, yes, the story is she doesn't have a home. She doesn't have a home. And I was like, uh, you know I'm how you're homeless. homeless. <laughs> uh, all right, we have time for a couple questions from you guys. Uh, oh, geez, that's too many. If you're on an aisle, come over here and I'll hold up the microphone to you. All right. Sure. Don't touch the microphone. Don't touch the microphone. Okay, is there a certain place in the pitch or the pitch document? where you can incorporate transmedia storytelling, you know, if your show has, you know, a web component, stuff like that? Have you guys ever done that and talked we about We do it. Like, we, like it's, pr oh, it's sure. pretty much a requirement of our pitches now, where we have to be like, and then the Twitter will interact with the video game that we're also creating, and by the way, Herman Cain also is opening a set of stores that you'll be able to buy online. Like, we're, we have to be multimedia at this point. We, uh, we tend to really dislike it um, really? in a scripted drama pitch. It's just like, tell me your show. This is, this is where it's going to live, just in the scripted, on-screen universe. And if we love the storytelling and the characters in the show, all of that other stuff is going to follow. But uh, we aren't going to pick up a show because it lends itself great to, to other media. So when you talk about it, uh, sorry, it's, uh, to, talk, to use your time in the pitch to talk about that isn't what we're looking for, at least. We're, we're, we're Aren't your viewers too old to use Twitter? Number one network in 1849. Yes, if you exclude sports programming and like five other things. <laughs> Sunday Night Football, The Voice, and about six other shows. He obviously has the wrong network. I work at CBS, and you remove... I'm saying NBC, never mind. No, 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 against, against that. And if you remove the Super Bowl, still number one. True. Giant asterisks. Do you guys have any suggestions? I mean, how, how would somebody that's not in L.A. or not in New York that doesn't have access to the studios, you know, to, to get a foot in the door, what, what could those of us do? Move to LA. <laughs> I, 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 I fundamentally disagree with that, just for the record. Incorrect. I, I, yeah. uh, I think one of the biggest things I do, I, I do a lot of uh, speaking around the country to colleges and stuff, and one of the number one questions is, should I move to LA to become a whatever, director, producer, whatever? And the one thing that I, I will say about television is, is that, or Los Angeles rather, is if you're coming with product, you are a whole hell of a lot more attractive than, oh, by the way, I'm a waiter at Spago and I've got a great script. And when you're in cities like Austin, and Austin is the ultimate example of this, there's so much production resources here. They've built the city up so well, and there are also a lot of, excuse the term, dumb money in this town as well. And so the ability to go get cash and produce a sizzle or a mini pilot or whatever is so much higher. And with buyers like 
uh, Netflix, which I think is on our lanyard, Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and, and ABC Family and like all these other people where you can do sub stuff. And I'm not just talking about reality. The scripted show we sold was something where we brought in, it was completely pre-shot, done, locked, etc. And so I, I, I fundamentally encourage you not to come to Los Angeles before you shoot something on your own. Especially if you're in like Austin or New Mexico or any of the states that are like, you know, there's more production going on here than there is in Los Angeles right now. Did you want to? Well, I was just going to say, just speaking purely from a from like a traditional model and not all the ancillary models, um, you just have to write content, you know, and you can you can find your foot in the door to get people to see your content through exactly what he's talking about from where you are. But at a certain point, if you've written a great script or a couple great scripts and people like it and you're building a network of contacts through the stuff you're doing locally, you do end up needing to be, you know, at least in the room, so to speak. And and if you only have that one script or those three specs of shows that are canceled or all those things, you just you, you have to keep writing. You can't write your one thing and be like, this is it. Wah! You know, <clears throat> you got to set that aside, start sending that out and then write more. Yeah, but I think it is a good point. Uh, you Tyler, can, no, uh, Tyler, you can Perry. make your bones yeah. somewhere. No, I'm just. Absolutely. I mean, here's the thing: is Tyler Perry, and this is a CBS story. I mean, Tyler Perry did everything on his own in Atlanta, in the in the in the Gulf Coast states. Gets flown out to L.A. We want to do your script. He writes the first draft of the script, hands it to CBS. They hand him notes, and he's like, "What are these?" <laughs> like, well, they're notes. This is, and he goes, "But I wrote. It's my show." And they're like, "Well, but they're. But these are our notes." And he said, "Okay, well." How much did you pay me? Well, $100,000. Here's your $100,000 back. Thank you very much. I'm going back to, to, to buy a Delta airline hangar, and I'm going to shoot my own show there. And I, like, I know that we talk about these as the exceptions to the rule, but in this media landscape, when Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and YouTube, I mean, I can literally, I could sit here for an hour and rattle off all the people who are making six figures a year that are not living in Los Angeles, that are producing content the way they like it, and they're the ones that are selling the next generation shows to what will eventually be NBC, CBS, CW, et cetera. It is, I, I'm telling you, it is such a mistake to come to L.A. if you do not create your own content. It just, it, it is. Plus, you can't date there at all. Right? <laughs> That's it's it. impossible to meet anybody. I don't want to argue every point, she says, but... <laughs> The weather's better, though, right? We can agree on that. The it's weather's sunny. better. The weather's better it is there. Sunny. Yes, and we hold this in June because in Austin, <laughs> Texas. Uh, can you talk about the decision-making process for a show that already has so much buzz or pre-established fans like Arrested Development or Gromy's World? Corey, uh, it's being very careful in how you pitch it to the audience because they expect something when there's when there is. Um, when there's the, you know, sort of this preconceived notion of what, for example, Girl Meets World is going to be. Is it going to play to the audience that watched Boy Meets World? Is it going to play to a whole new audience? Those are all things like you think about, but at the end of the day, we just want to make the best show for the brand. And, and if the audience comes with it, of course we want the, the people who watch Boy Meets World. I grew up on that show. I wanted to do Girl Meets World, and I'm sure Michael wanted to continue that because, because of what it meant to people. But at the end of the day... Um, you got to manage expectations. You know, Girl Meets World is a show that for Disney Channel for kids, and it will have aspects of Boy Meets World in it and things in there for the the core fans. But it, you know, it's meant to be a kid show. All right. Um, very quickly, this is our last question, starting with Julie and going down the line. Uh, what are you watching on television? What's getting you excited? What is your room talking about? What are you talking about with your friends? Well, I love Scandal. It's my favorite show on the planet, and I can do no wrong. Um, <clears throat> and Homeland, and I can't wait for the newsroom. 
um, to come back. Uh, everybody else I know on the planet watches Game of Thrones, and uh, and I'm two years behind. So, uh, but uh, it, in the writer universe, if like, and I consider myself to be not a real writer because I have not seen Breaking Bad. I have not watched <laughs> the last two seasons of Game of Thrones. I don't watch Mad Men. I don't watch pretty much anything on cable. I don't watch, um, and so therefore I'm a hack and should be just sent home. You're, you're a little busy writing all the shows. Um, I think the one show I have to watch is New Girl these days. Every, I'm sure there's fans out there. It's, it's just so well written in a season. I think last comedy season didn't really have any breakout hits. But every time I watch the show, I go, these writers are smart. They just write characters in such a defined way. And that's really what makes a comedy a comedy. It's, you have characters you want to come back to every week. That's why Friends ran for 10 years. You know, so keep doing that. Charlie? This is such a judgmental question. Like, I'm just waiting to be judged oh, by I'm, everyone when I say this out loud. I have columns in my head. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything on USA Network, um, it's just, uh, I like Blue Skies. It makes me happy. Um, I like Big Bang. I like How I Met Your Mother. I think those aren't your department, but I like those. I like Person of Interest, obviously. Um, I, I, I like big, broad... I like big, broad stuff. I think the art form of making... I look, Breaking Bad, I think, is probably one of the best television shows of the last, I don't know how long, uh, insert superlative. But, but what I would say is this. Two years. It, uh, <laughs> I, I would say this. I, I think there's such an art form to creating a show that a lot of people want to watch. Yeah. If it's a show that speaks... You're talking about friends and stuff. If you can figure out how to tap, tap into everyone's zeitgeist at the same time, that's, in, that's incredible. And, and I think that those shows make me feel... It's cool to know when I turn on the television, 30 million other people are doing well, the same thing. it makes you feel hope for the commerciality of the medium. Like, it makes you feel hope that television will survive if you can, mm-hmm. like, create a show that, like, 20 mil- million people it's watch. It's not going to be all niche shows. On networks. Yeah, it also pays yeah. for, you know, my office and car and gas and stuff like that, so I'm also pretty Well, and pays for those other shows, too. Yeah. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, thank God. Uh, Brian? Yeah, I'm watching pretty much every show <laughs> they mentioned yeah. up here, but I did just to say a show that... I hadn't heard about it. I watched three episodes on the plane this morning with Orphan Black. Oh, yeah. Oh, my so God. Orphan Black. Mind-blowing. Like, we that? landed, and, like, yeah. and I wanted to like start the iPad so back. Good. I'm like, now that we've landed, can I open the iPad back? <laughs> like, that, was, that was tremendous. Fun. Kyle? I'm super stereotypical writer catalog. It's like, you know, Mad Men, Breaking Bad. There, there hasn't... Hasn't I haven't watched despite writing network dramas? There's not one. No, no offense. I just I like I haven't. The thing is, you can dig into the other ones because they're like reading a book. And I think what I like, you know, even when they're not, uh, it's the anti zeitgeist that they are so specific. It's really encouraging to me that there's a place on television for people who have a story that will only appeal to people who like you know meth making cancer teachers. <laughs> You're- you're also a, a comedy fan, I know. Is there comedy stuff that you are into right now? Uh, again, like kind of the we were just at the comedy bang bang um, panel, but like people who are doing weird yeah. stuff <laughs> and different, and in that one, like kind of happy, like it's you know not being assaulted not with negativity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Liz. Um, I was just obsessed with House of Cards, and. Um, I actually, before working on it, was obsessed with, like, freaking out about Bates Motel, which is why I was 
excited to be a part of it, and um, I'm looking forward to the originals and Mind Games. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm into. Great. Uh, thank you guys all so much. Please give a round of applause to our panelists: Liz Tiglar, Kyle Killen, Brian Seabury, Charlie Ebersol, Corey Marsh, and Julie Pleck. Uh, thanks to everyone here at the ATX Festival. Do I have to tell them anything? Now leaving Nerdist.com.